Hi, it's Ken White. And it's Josh Barrow, and this is Serious Trouble. Uh, we're back rather quickly, Ken, just a few days after after we last taped. And uh, there's, you know, the news has continued apace in these various legal proceedings that we're following. Why don't we start in Georgia? I want to start with Mark Meadows. Mark Meadows uh, is one of the 19 defendants indicted by Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis in that sweeping RICO case about the effort to steal the 2020 election. And Mark Meadows is one of the defendants who removed his case to federal court. Uh, He filed with the federal court basically saying this charge that the state has brought has to do with things that I was doing in my capacity as White House chief of staff. Under federal law, I'm entitled to be tried in federal court instead of state court. And we've talked about this and we've generally thought that Meadows had a, you know, it's not that he was necessarily going to win on this, but we thought he had a pretty plausible argument here uh, that his case should be removed. Uh, And he is lost in federal court or federal judge has basically said, no, the the stealing the election was not part of your job responsibilities. And therefore, uh, having been involved in this alleged conspiracy is not something you can remove to federal court. Are you surprised by, you know, how how sweepingly he lost here? Uh, Well, maybe a little surprised that he lost on this issue. So United States District Court Judge Steve Jones uh, last week issued a 49-page ruling, a very thorough treatment of this subject, going through the test for whether or not Mark Meadows was able to show what he had to show. And Remember, Josh, there are three elements he has to show. One is whether he was a federal officer, and that's undisputed. Second, whether his charged acts were undertaken for or related to his federal office, and that's supposed to be a fairly low bar, uh, that level of relationship. And then third, whether he has a colorable federal defense. And uh, so what Judge Jones said was basically that he, he could not show the second part. He could not show that the charges were for acts undertaken for or related to his federal office. And this is kind of the complicated part. And this is deep uh, federal courts porn for (laughs) all the uh, federal courts uh, fanatics out there. Sexy. Yeah. What what Judge Jones did is said, okay, well, what exactly is it that has to be related to your federal office? Is it the evidence or is it the heart of the crime? And what Judge Jones said uh, is that based on case law, he thinks that it has to be the heart of the crime, the part that's illegal that has to be related to the federal office, not just some element they're going to use as proof. So in this case, remember, the big issue were the overt acts, the things described in the indictment as acts that were in support of this RICO conspiracy. And, and, and just to remind people, an overt act is not necessarily a crime. It's evidence of the crime. The You know, the, you can make phone calls and that's not illegal. But if you're making them in furtherance of a conspiracy, then that may be listed as an overt act in an indictment. And some of the overt acts that are listed for Mark Meadows were things like attending meetings and scheduling things, which are things that he did in his yeah. capacity as White House chief of staff. Absolutely. And as we've talked about before, the whole concept of overt acts is supposed to be something that protects us from abuse of conspiracy charges. The notion is that we don't want people to be convicted just for talk, just for, mm-hmm. you know, in an evening of drinking, uh, coming to some sort of agreement with your idiot friends that you're going to do something illegal. They want in the cold light of day 
to show that something has been moved forward. Someone's done something to move this forward. So the overt acts don't have to be crimes. They can even be things protected uh, by the First Amendment. It, it just It's just a piece of evidence that someone moved the conspiracy forward. So what Judge Jones says here is that the essence of the RICO conspiracy charge is the agreement to violate Georgia law. And that's the thing that you have to compare to his federal office to see whether or not it's related to it. You don't compare just overt acts, which are just evidence of the conspiracy. And the judge said, taken that way, and also taking into account the Hatch Act, which is a law that prevents federal employees from engaging in politics on the job, uh, that what he was doing was not sufficiently related to his federal office to meet this test. And so Judge Jones doesn't even get to that third part of the question of whether or not he had a colorable federal defense. So is this ruling right? Because I am I was really surprised by that that reliance on the Hatch Act. I was surprised as, you know, as this was getting raised, because basically I thought, you know, the, the, the removal statute has to do with when you take actions under the color of your office. It doesn't have to mean that you're actually entitled to do the thing that you did. I mean, in fact, if you are being criminally tried, presumably it's about some sort of misconduct. And it, it feels like basically you, you could say there then that, you know, it is not the job of a federal employee to commit crimes. And therefore, any criminal act is outside the scope of the office. It, se- it seems like basically you would never be able to meet the bar for removal if that's the standard. Well, I, I think you could. So if you're shooting at somebody and you're shooting at somebody on the job, then I think that meets the definition of related to the job, even if the decision is you used excessive force or exceeded what you were supposed to do. This, the judge emphasized, was a large-scale conspiracy to interfere with the state's uh, treatment of its own votes. He also made some points about federalism, which are kind of at the heart of uh, of this statute and this concept, that federalism is very much against interfering with the state, trying to police uh, its own vote counting and, you know, hold people accountable for trying to interfere with it. But Josh, in terms of whether or not it's right, this is very much an open field. Uh, there's not a lot of authority on it. And even Judge Jones acknowledges this. I, I think it's absolutely ripe for appeal to the Court of Appeals. And uh, you could get a very different decision from there. As we'd been talking about this uh, this issue before we got this ruling, I, I think our expectation was that Mark Meadows was more likely to fail on the third prong of that test for removal, which is that he had to have a colorable federal defense to the charges. And so I, if there was an appeal and the appeals court disagreed with Judge Jones on this issue about, you know, what's the scope of his office, and they would still have to consider whether he can meet the third prong of the test, even if they decide that, in fact, he does meet the second prong, unlike what Judge Jones ruled. They would probably send it back to Judge Jones for a decision on the third prong rather than make the decision themselves. And yes, so there, as you recall, one of the defenses he had was federal immunity, and that may turn on whether what he was doing doing related to his job was a necessary and proper carrying out of his job, which I think is a heavy lift for him. But uh, yeah, I I could see this very easily going either way in the Court of Appeals. More broadly in Georgia, we've also gotten the report from the Fulton County Special Grand Jury. So to to remind people how this worked, there was a special grand jury impaneled to look just at this issue of 
of the, the attempt to steal the 2020 election. And that grand jury produced a report. And we've now learned that that report recommended indictments against 39 people. Ultimately, only 19 were indicted. But in, in Georgia, a special grand jury doesn't actually indict itself. It produces a report which goes to the DA, and then the DA can go before a regular grand jury and seek indictments based on the report from the special grand jury. Um, and so are, are you surprised by the, the breadth of this, that that special grand jury wanted to be even more aggressive than the very aggressive approach that Fannie Willis has taken? I'm not particularly surprised, no. Special grand juries are kind of a weird animal because they're given more autonomy to make recommendations. Generally, grand juries, even though, you know, we conceptualize them as these sort of autonomous entities that are making decisions, they're really not. They're deciding on what the prosecutor puts in front of them. Uh, when you say they return an indictment, um, that just means that they approve the indictment that the prosecutor drafted and stuck in front of them. So they don't make decisions like who should we indict unless very rarely they say, no, we don't think you have enough evidence on all the people on this indictment you gave us. Uh, special grand juries are a little different in that they're asked to take a, a broader view. Uh, so the fact that they thought there was enough evidence to go after some other people just shows that they, they were asked to think more broadly. But those are still all people that Fannie Willis brought to their attention. But it's not surprising that she went for a narrower range of people when she actually indicted. Grand juries don't have terrific uh, sense of what you can actually get a conviction on uh, at trial as opposed to what's probable cause. And they're prone in uh, special grand jury situations to accuse, you know, the wrongdoers, the wrongdoers associates, the wrongdoers family passing dogs, you know, whatever, uh, anyone nearby. So going really broadly like this is not that surprising. What's a little interesting are the vote counts. So you could see that, you know, for instance, they were pretty much unanimous, uh, maybe I think one dissenter in going after former President Trump, but they were much more divided going after, for instance, Senator Lindsey Graham. And there were other ones where, you know, it was a very divided vote. So I think... Um, Fonnie Willis has bitten off plenty with these 19 people, and there are enough proof problems as it is. So it does not surprise me that she decided she didn't want to, for instance, take on the speech and debate clause for Senator Lindsey Graham, but what he was doing, or take on any of these other possible defenses these other people had. Right. So that's it wasn't just Lindsey Graham. They also recommended indictments of two former Republican senators from Georgia who were sitting at the time of the 2020 election. That was David Perdue and Kelly Loeffler. And when, when you reference the speech and debate clause, basically, there's a clause of the Constitution that protects members of Congress from prosecution for things that they do directly in the scope of their office. Right. And uh, this was actually something that different senators invoked when they tried to resist cooperating with the special grand jury investigation. And the concept being that the heart of it is you, you, you can't be sued or prosecuted for what you say on the floor of Congress, but then it broadens out from there to not being prosecuted for things that members of Congress say or do in the course of their job. Uh, it's a little cloudy sometimes, and I think it's dubious that it would apply to them making calls to Georgia uh, about the vote count, uh, but it would at least be a barrier to clarity of prosecution. And then additionally, some of the people who weren't indicted, presumably that's because they're cooperating. 
that seems likely. Uh, some of them, the vote count was very clear and the evidence seemed clear, but they didn't wind up in the indictment. And that may be because they flipped, uh, which is uh, sometimes the smart thing to do. Speaking of which, let's talk about this letter from Just Security, from three attorneys at Jenner and Block wrote this letter that was published at Just Security. Uh, and it's to a letter to Ken Chesabro, Cheesebro. And uh, they're saying that in this in this case that he ought to plead guilty. Um, that that would be the smart thing for him to do, that Fonnie Willis has got him dead to rights and, you know, he's very likely to end up going to prison and prison is really bad. And in our professional opinion as experienced defense attorneys, they say, Ken, we think you should plead guilty. What'd you make of that? I thought it was not funny enough for satire and not serious enough for serious. Uh, It was somewhere (laughs) stuck uncomfortably in the middle. Uh, So... This is a dumb recommendation because Mm -hmm. they don't know all the necessary facts that a defense lawyer would need to know to make a recommendation like this. They don't know what he really did. They don't know what facts he knows. Uh, They have not seen the discovery. This is, to me, even though there's no explicit legal ethical prohibition against it, this kind of smacks to me of like, you know, practicing psychiatrists going on TV and opining about whether or not uh, the president has narcissistic personality disorder or something like that. It's, it's kind of an, an abuse a bit of the profession. Defense lawyers, capable defense lawyers, do not tell people to go to trial or to plead guilty based on what they see in the media, because that's not the way it works. Defense lawyers talk to the client, find out what the client knows, look at the discovery, find out the facts, and make recommendations and assessments based on that. So I kind of see what they're doing. It's kind of a commentary on uh, what kind of position he's in and how someone in his position should certainly consider whether or not pleading guilty is the right option. But to actually go and say he should do it, it's dumb. The prose here is really over the top, too. It's, we beseech you, think of one and only one thing, your liberty. Uh, It says, if you really want to roll the dice with the jury, the federal case looms. That must be factored in here. Yours is a Damoclean situation. Yeah. A Damoclean situation, Ken. It's a little over the top. Uh, Again, that's why I say it's kind of like it's aiming both at seriousness and satire and hitting neither of them. Uh, (laughs) So I I think they could have punched it up and made it funnier and clear that they're sort of tongue-in-cheek talking about... But are they? Is is this tongue-in-cheek? I, I genuinely don't know. That's how <laughs> kind of clumsy it is. Yeah. But I mean, but these are like, these are serious people. Like Katya Justin is this co-managing partner of Jenner and Block. Like she, you know, she's a former AUSA. Right. It, it's kind of, I mean, it seems quite unprofessional to go out and, and give unsolicited legal advice that is overconfident in this matter. I, I mean, I wouldn't do it. Uh, but uh, I guess maybe it's a matter of taste or something. Um, I, I, again, I think they're meaning to kind of convey a lighthearted, quick uh, cut on the news type of opinion about how things look on the surface. But they don't convey that well enough. They don't convey, of course, to make this decision, you would have to very carefully consult with a lawyer, tell them everything, look at all the discovery, make an intelligent, informed decision. That's what's left out of this. Uh, They they need to put the uh, clown nose on a little more clearly, or they need to step it up and make it much more serious by putting in those qualifiers. One of the two.
let's talk some about the the Florida case before Judge Eileen Cannon. Um, there was this New York Times story about Yusil Tavares, the IT guy at Mar-a-Lago, who declined to try to uh, delete the security camera footage that Donald Trump wanted deleted. We knew some of this narrative, but it's it's gotten more fleshed out in the in this New York Times story. Where basically, he was represented by Stanley Woodward, who also represents Walt Nauta, um, and who was being paid by one of the Trump associated super PACs. And so Tavares had had gone in for an interview, and he'd not been fully forthcoming. And then eventually, the prosecutors uh, file a motion saying, you know, hey, we think it's a conflict of interest that you all have the same lawyer. And so the judge in Washington D.C. had Tavares talk to the public defender. And he switched to be represented by the public defender. And then he went and changed his story and now has been basically telling them, yeah, they they tried to get me to delete the, the IT security footage. What did you make of this timeline? Josh, it was even more serious than that. He just didn't go in and talk to investigators and prosecutors. He testified in front of the grand jury and lied, apparently, said, said he didn't know anything about the story about being asked to delete the security footage. And it was only after it was arranged for him to talk to the public defender that he decided he wanted to stick with the public defender and fire Stanley Woodward. And then he went back and retestified in front of the grand jury and this time told how he was asked to delete the footage. So that, that certainly strongly suggests that he did not get good advice uh, because there is there is no scenario where the right advice is to lie to the grand jury. Uh, and, and I'm not saying that as a matter of... Uh, patriotism or ethics or anything like that, but simply as a matter of um, if you're in a position where you think you need to lie to the grand jury, you should take the fifth instead. Um, mm-hmm. Because lying to the grand jury is just asking to be prosecuted. Uh, they take a dim view of that type of thing. Uh, but yeah, this was a, a seems to be a serious conflict here where Stanley Woodward is, is representing not only someone who's charged and who is accused of being part of the conspiracy that includes asking this guy to delete footage, but also representing the guy who was asked. And uh, so their interests are are very much adverse because it's in Walt Nata's interest for this guy to keep saying, no, I wasn't asked. And it may be in his interest to cooperate, as it did. So yeah, the, the public defender will talk to you frankly and cure you of all that bullshit uh, that your other attorney may have told you. And it seems this is the right choice because it looks like he's going to get – he's not going to take a hit for lying to the grand jury. He's not going to get charged with that. He's not going to get charged with anything from the underlying conspiracy, which he probably shouldn't because he said no. He didn't join the conspiracy. And this kind of shows why the government's statement to Judge Cannon in Florida that, hey, maybe you need to look at whether or not this lawyer has any conflicts of interest is pretty well taken. Mm -hmm. But so then as we're seeing this news about Yusil Tavares, there's also the fact that Stanley Woodward is representing Walt Nauta. And the government has been seeking some action from Eileen Cannon, uh, the judge overseeing this case, basically to deal with the fact that he may also have a conflict of interest as regards Walt Nauta, because he's you know representing certain people who might be witnesses in the case, might be witnesses against Nauta. And Judge Cannon has been pretty hesitant to take the actions the government is looking for with regard to that. I assume what the government wants is to get Stanley Woodward off the Nauta representation because Walt Nauta himself might also flip uh, if he were no longer being advised by a Trump-associated lawyer. Maybe, maybe not. There are a couple of 
related impulses here on the part of the government. One is they don't want to convict somebody and then have it overturned because the person's lawyer had a conflict of interest. So this is very typical. What they want is for the judge to inquire of the person, the witness or the defendant, and say, basically, uh, are you sure? Do you understand that your attorney is also representing this other person? Do you understand the implications of that? Are you still choosing for this to be your attorney? And then kind of the person blessing it, and then they can't come back later in theory and complain that they didn't understand there was a conflict of interest. Secondarily, yes, prosecutors often want to get rid of a particular attorney if they perceive that attorney is a barrier to cooperation. So yeah, they may think that they can flip Walt Nada if Stanley Woodward isn't representing him, but uh, it's going to be harder to do that because the judge is only going to disqualify him if the judge finds that there are conflicts of interest that are not waivable and that the clients uh, in question will not waive. But I mean, is it? it's not just a, a matter of whether Judge Cannon will disqualify him, right? It's that, you know, by raising these issues and causing Walt Nauta to discuss them with people, conceivably Walt Nauta might come to realize that he's the legal advice he's getting is not really aimed at his interests, that it's aimed at Trump's interests, that he could choose to fire Stanley Woodward as a result of this. It could be, but he could also feel very strongly that Woodward is representing his best interest, that he doesn't want to cooperate, that he hasn't done anything wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, I've seen it play out both ways. We don't know what advice Woodward is giving him. We don't know what not as... I mean, a lot of uh, a lot of Trump partisans are willing to uh, go to the chopping block for him. Uh, and Walt may just be another such guy. Speaking of the chopping block for Trump, let's talk about Peter Navarro, uh, who was an economic advisor uh, in the Trump administration, and uh, he's a total weirdo. And he was subpoenaed by the January 6th commission because, you know, like a, a lot of people whose roles were supposed to be very tangential to elections and campaigning ended up tied up in this. You know, I mean, remember, like Jeffrey Clark was an environmental lawyer. Uh, so Peter Navarro was supposed to testify before Congress. He just didn't show up when he was subpoenaed and he was actually charged with contempt of Congress and he had a two day trial in which he was convicted. Yeah. Uh, Josh, have you ever heard of a slow plea? I have not. <laughs> so a slow plea is what you call somebody who goes to trial, even though they have no defense and it's perfectly clear they're going to get convicted. And uh, that's kind of what Peter Navarro did here. He went to trial just on this issue of defiance of the subpoena. He didn't present any witnesses. Uh, and the trial took two days, which is alarmingly fast for a federal criminal trial. So, I mean, I've, I've had I've had juries that took longer than two days to pick in, in federal trials. So um, this was something where he didn't really seem to have much of a chance, at least in Washington, D.C., barring some juror basically uh, deciding to, to hang the jury to, to nullify. He had made the argument that he had an executive privilege defense, that what Congress was looking for was protected by executive privilege. But the judge would not let him raise that at trial. And, and I think that's probably the right decision because Peter Navarro didn't invoke executive privilege to Congress. He didn't show up and say, I declined to answer because of executive privilege, or I declined to answer because of the Fifth Amendment. He just didn't show up. 
And uh, I, even for God's sake, even the Wall Street Journal editorial page about this conviction says, yeah, okay, you can't just not show up. Uh, we think we had a, he had an executive privilege argument, but you got to show up and say that. So here's what I think he should have done. Uh, he should have sent his alter ego, Ron Vara, to testify. Ron Vara. Ron Vara. Yes. Uh, China trade expert Ron Vara. Exactly. Frequently cited in Peter Navarro's books. Yes. Not a real person, just an anagram of Navarro. Right. Uh, so he should have sent him. Uh, and that way he keeps clean. He can blame uh, Ron Vara uh, and he's not betraying Trump. But instead, he just decided not to show up, that being sort of the fashionable thing to do. Uh, so now he's got these misdemeanor convictions. You know, um, Steve Bannon, when he was convicted on this, got a couple of months as I recall, uh, in custody. I, I suspect... I think it was four months for Bannon. Yeah, I think Navarro will get that or less. Navarro is is less of a ne'er-do-well and, and more telegenic and less looking like he slept in somebody's trunk than Bannon was. So I think he might get more like two months or something like that. I bet he'll get a little bit of time because the judge is going to be pissed at him and he did go to trial. Mm. Uh, yeah. But a little bit of time. Steve Bannon is out pending appeal of that case. Well, is that likely to happen with Navarro, too? He'll appeal this and he won't serve the sentence until the appeals are done? That's up to the judge. Uh, I, I think here that the judge may say that he does not have a plausible argument on appeal and therefore, no, you're serving your time. And I doubt that the Court of Appeal would disturb that ruling. Did you know that Peter Navarro ran for mayor of San Diego in 1992 and got 48% of the vote? I did not, but I did know that he apparently ran for Congress. As a Democrat. And uh, was not successful. Right. But not losing by enormous margins. Like, he ran credible losing camp. Like, the, he was almost mayor of San Diego. How crazy is that? Well, this weirdo. Josh, here's the thing about San Diego. I love San Diego. It's a marvelous place <laughs> to have a trial, to vacation, <laughs> to live. But but they, they elect absolute fucking lunatics. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I think uh, on that note about San Diego, we can leave that there this week. Ken, thank you so much for speaking with me, as always. Thank you, Josh. Serious Trouble is created and produced by Very Serious Media. That's me and Sarah Fay. Jennifer Swadek mixed this episode. Our theme music is by Joshua Mosier. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with more soon. See you next time. <laughs>